102.5 FM, KXSFLP San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Access to financial services has been recognized as one of the most important factors in eradicating global poverty. 1.7 billion adults remain unbanked on the global scale, yet two-thirds of them own a mobile phone that could help them access financial services. Women make up more than 55% of the global unbanked population. How can we help the unbanked become bankable and access financial services and support? Today, I'm talking with Ashish Gadness, who is working to address this challenge through his blockchain technology platform and company, BankQ. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Ashish. Thank you for the opportunity. Can you describe what is happening in most parts of the world where people are not bankable? Yes. Um, I would say there's a very fundamental problem or flaw in most of the parts of the world where people are not bankable, and that is supply chain invisibility. Let me elaborate. If you are a smallholder farmer, especially women farmers, or if you are a waste picker, you know, picking up plastic and bottles, if you look at these two sides of the supply chain, even though you are growing coffee, barley, cacao, or picking up bottles of plastic for recycling, you are completely invisible in that supply chain, even though we drink a $10 cup of latte, right? And why are you invisible? Because the minute I sell my crop to a cooperative, then that goes to a transporter and upstream, that mama farmer does not get proof that she is participating in that supply chain. And because she does not have proof that she's working or providing for raw materials in that supply chain, she's invisible. That makes her unbankable because she cannot prove her existence in that supply chain. And that's a huge problem. And that's the number one cause for gender discrimination and extreme poverty. Does she get paid in some way where, or does she get paid? I guess the question then is, how do they verify what she's providing and pay her for it? Yes, and this is kind of where we come in, right? But before BenQ, what happens is that she will get paid, but she may not get paid the right amount. She might not get paid for the quality of the crops. And most importantly, she could get, just get cheated, right? Because she is not an equal participant in that um, supply chain. So while today she might be getting paid, she has no proof that she's getting paid. If she got proof, and I'll give you a live example, and this is before we rolled out BenQ, one of the women farmers in Uganda, she had gotten a paper receipt. And it rained, and the receipt disintegrated. She had to wait for four days coming every day asking for her money to be paid. And they were like, where's your receipt? And the receipt had completely disintegrated in the rain, right? And women are smarter than men. We already know that. But this mother could not prove her existence. So she had to wait four days to get paid, which is just completely unfair. So the challenge that Bank Q and you are working to address is to show that she has some kind of proof to verify who she is and the type of work she has completed. Absolutely. And it's an easy one-liner, right? All we do is we make supply chain traceable and transparent, but most importantly, equitable. Traceable and transparent because the brand can say, hey, we can tell you who our farmers are. 
we can tell you who our recyclers are, right? So the consumers love that. Equitable because now that mama farmer or that mama waste picker has proof that she is part of a global supply chain, which she has been denied up until now. My understanding is that each of these farmers need to have a mobile phone, and that's the way they create the identity on your platform? Yes, but they don't have to have a smartphone. That's a critical, critical component. Because, you know, I'm a big believer that don't throw technology just for the sake of technology. Meet people where they are. And I've spent, you know, starting 2013, most of my life now in the last seven, eight years in Africa and Latin America working with farmers and waste pickers. What you see that most of them have an SMS phone, not a smartphone. Most of them know what is the price, the quality, the quantity. And, and in Africa, especially, they use mobile money, not cryptocurrency. So when we started rolling out you, that was the number one thing we said we're going to do is our interface to the mama farmer is going to be a non-interface. Because today, she manages her life on the $1.90, this is before Bank you through an SMS phone. In the bank you world, when she comes to sell her crop at the co-op level, she gets an SMS message that confirms her quantity, quality, price, and payout, and she agrees. And because it's on blockchain, the supply chain now has the same copy, so she cannot be cheated. And if she's using mobile money like MTN and Pesa, she can get directly paid. Remember, it's not a smartphone. It's a simple SMS phone. Everything in the local currency, everything in the local language. Did I answer your question? Yes, but my question is, the phone number itself is her identification in this case. And the SMS that's going to her as to how much she's going to get paid and she has a record of it is then tied to her phone number. Yes, one of our big customers is ABM Bev, and you can see this, we'll publicly talk about it. When they do the rollouts to their farmers, they're big in gender equality. And I've been in those farmer meetings. They'll say, if you're the mama farmer, don't send your husband's phone because you need to get paid, right? If you lose your phone, remember now in most countries, the SIM card of that SMS phone is tied to a national ID for KYC and anti-terror laws and things like that. So if you lose your phone, you can come and now give your new phone number that's tied to your national identity. So that the mother starts becoming bankable, not the husband or the brother. It's important for them to have a phone that's tied to the national ID if they want to have access to money. Yes, but we have examples now. We're working in Latin America, for example, in, in Colombia, right, where because of the Venezuelan refugee crisis, we also have the option, look, if you don't want to give your phone number, you don't want to give your uh, ID, and you just want to have a record, know that you will not be invisible. We have that option where as long as you can create then a name and you can always come and use that, because at the end of the day, the problem we're trying to solve is to make visible these transactions that they are rightfully participating in. Yes, but part of that is having identity, which is a challenge for the unbankable. They have no personal record of who they are. And even in the United States, there's just no identity record that's tied to that person and address and so on that just keeps on going even here. So over there, I would think the challenge is even greater if they don't have some kind of identity that's being tied to them to verify who they are. And then let's say if she loses uh, her phone, then it becomes a challenge for her to then access her transactions. Uh, Actually, that's not our experience. We worked in some really remote places, right? So Uganda, 
Sudan border, Zambia-Congo border, pretty much all of our farmers have a national ID card with a picture on it. And that national ID card has a number, right? Like in India, there's the Aadhaar number. In Zambia, it's an NRC card. In Colombia, the waste pickers have a cedula. We talk about the Colombian waste pickers, they have a cedula number. And that cedula number can be tied to the cell phone. In fact, actually, what our experience is that while they're invisible in the supply chains, they have an identity. They just have never been given the transaction identity, which we call the economic identity or the economic passport. And this is where your blockchain technology comes in, is that then you give them that bankable record. Yes. And I'll give you a personal example, right? When I came to the United States, I had $240, but I came legally at a job and everything. At the end of the first month, I was able to take my rent receipt. I was able to get my light bill and my pay stub, three pieces of paper, went to a bank and got a bank account because I was now visible, right? Right. Whereas if you are that mother on the Zambia-Congo border, live example, right? We work a lot with Indian Bank. Before we started BankQ, she had an ID card from one of the NGOs. She was working with some microfinance, another ID card. She had ID cards. She was selling her harvest. She had five different microloans. But at no given time could she bring her three pieces of paper together because she has no proof that she works in the supply chain. All we have done is that we've said, hey, if you're selling barley upstream, and we actually don't go to the mama, right? We go to the brand. Like AB investors, I want to know who my farmers are. And the 300 farmers get connected. Every transaction now becomes part of their history, which then allows them to get a bank account, pay for school fees, get crop insurance, do mobile banking. Which is very powerful. Can you talk about your personal experience that led you to create BankQ? Yes, it's kind of famous and famous, depending on how you look at it. I grew up poor, right? But everything is relative, right? My poverty in India was nothing compared to the poverty I've seen in Congo and other places. But I came to the U.S., built and sold a couple of companies and, and sold my last company in 2012. And I was done. I wanted to do something with poverty, but I did not want to go down the stack classic foundation route. So I became a volunteer for USAID. And I started going in and out of Congo, working on their social enterprise. I was the volunteer CEO for the social enterprise there. And at the end of 2014, I got into this argument because one of the women farmers, and women are smarter than men, I've said it before, and I saw it firsthand, she wanted to open a bank account. But the local bank said no. And I got into this argument. The guy said, look, I can't bank her, but I'll bank you. That's where the name comes from. And it kind of struck me that here I am in 2014, right, with all the technology available, and the mother is unbankable because, A, she's a woman, B, she can't prove her harvest information, C, the bank doesn't trust her, but they trust me. That's when he said, I can bank you, but not her. That's when I kind of realized that, wait a minute, there's a massive flaw how we look at people in poverty. We look at people in poverty from a pity lens, which is horrible. In, in doing so, we basically now start owning their data. But think about this, right? And again, you don't have to take my word for it. You can, it's happening today with the COVID vaccine and everything else is that if the program ends, and I leave as an NGO or social enterprise, who leaves with the mother's agriculture data? Yet you're paying $10 for a latte, thinking you're helping that mother in Africa, right? And for me, that was a flaw that nobody had solved before. It's easy to describe, which is people who work in our global supply chain, recycling, artisanal miners, waste pickers, farmers, do not have an equal copy of the transaction that they participated to prove their existence in the supply chain. 
Is the platform created for those who are employing them or is the platform created for them to be part of record system of all the transactions? I'm trying to understand is who's driving the creation of the platform, the people hiring them or themselves? It's actually multifaceted, right? So let's take one layer at a time. We are a for-profit company driven by purpose. I sell software as a service, just like Salesforce.com, to the brand, right? I'm going to give you a detailed answer because it's important. The brand has a four- or five-tier supply chain. Farmer to the co-op, co-op to the transporter, transporter to the brewery, or to the factory. That multi-tier supply chain, in the traditional world, non-banking world, right, if you're buying coffee or whatever, downstream as you go, you start losing visibility because your data is getting more and more disintermediated, right? So you saw the Supreme Court case when I think it was Cargill or Nestle stood up and said, we really can't do anything about child labor because we don't know who the farmer is. I think that's a bad excuse. Here's why, right? Because at the brand level, if you really are trying to do sustainable supply chains, then you need to know who your farmer is. And so what we do is the brand says, hey, I want to have a supply chain that's traceable, transparent, and equitable. There's two sides to the coin. The brand says, I want to be able to purchase cassava. I'm giving you a live example. I can send you the case study from these cassava farmers on the Zambia-Congo border because we use cassava in our beer. I don't know who the farmers are. I might have information at the co-op level. I might have information at the transporter level. I might have information at the factory level. But at the end of the day, I don't have a clean line of sight in terms of who the farmer is. So the brand buys access to our software, just like software as a service, and then they deploy it. The mother farmer does not have to be trained because, remember, she just uses an SMS phone. So now what happens, if you look at that specific example, mama to the co-op, to the transporter, to the warehouse, the manufacturing of the beer, everybody is using BenQ. So when she sells that 40 kilos of barley or cassava to the co-op, it's a secured supply chain, no cryptocurrency. She gets an SMS message confirming the 40 kilos, 16% moisture. Here's the payout. If she wants cash, she can cash out. If she's using mobile money, M-Pesa goes directly to her M-Pesa account or bank because we work with banks too. And then the co-op now has the same copy that says, hey, I purchased 40 kilos. Then they're going to transfer the 40 kilos. So from a traceability and transparency, the CEO of ABN Bev can say, I can tell you that at 12.46 p.m., we bought 40 kilos of cassava from this mama farmer. So they have a traceable, transparent supply chain. And the mother now has this history, which we call the economic passport, because she can permission a bank and say, I can prove that I am an ABM web farmer. Up until now, she wasn't able to. Did I answer your question? Yes, I completely agree that the transparency is great for the companies. It's great for her because she has record of everything she's farmed and, and records for creating financial access. And for the consumers who want to know that they're buying products from a transparent supply chain. The question then is, in the case of NGOs that then leave and the data leaves with them, what happens in this case when the company pulls out? Does all the data then leave with them as well? Nope. That's the beauty of blockchain, right? And that's one of the things that we're so far ahead of any of our competitors because we built a data system on blockchain where the mama owns her data. Remember, the basic definition of blockchain, multiple parties in a transaction get a copy of the transaction. So if the brand pulls out, the mother should continue to have access to her data because it's her data. 
It's the anti-Facebook. She needs to own our data. And we run a software as a service where we get paid for everybody in the supply chain, including the farmers by the brand, but we never charge downstream. If the brand went away, the mama continues to use access to our data. And that's the benefit of being on blockchain, right? Because now she could say, hey, look, I was selling coffee to Coffee A company, and they left Congo because whatever, and the Coffee B company comes in, it would be a disservice to not allow the mother to show her harvest information with Coffee A companies. So thank you. She continues to have access. What you have created is a multi-layer system where, let's say, if the companies leave the platform, the data is still accessible by the farmers or the workers that are involved on the other side. Yes, I mean, take a live example, right? We're, we're working with some folks with the COVID vaccine rollout. Um, I mean, U.S. You know, has its own issues, but if you look at some of these emerging market countries, how are you going to ensure that poor people actually got the vaccine? And even after they got the vaccine, what proof do they have they got the vaccine? Thank you, does that. Why wouldn't you yeah. use biometrics to identify? Ah, great question, great. Every country is different in the sense that everybody has legal requirements, some countries, you can't take a photo, you can't take a thumbprint. We've stayed away from that. If there's in-country there enforcing biometrics, we have an integration layer that we'll integrate to. But we don't enforce it. It's just because every country has different regulations. The reason I ask this is I would imagine that a lot of them are migrant as well. They're not in the same place all the time. And it's probably not easy for them to have the same uh, mobile, even for people here. And let's say they cross the border and go somewhere else to work. What happens then? Aha. See, the issue with biometrics, right, is you got to look at where. A lot of the places where we're offering, these are like really, really tough places. And not everybody's going to have the biometric technology. In Vancouver, let's take a live example. If something happens in one region and you have, you're forced to move, when you go to the new place in the old world, you're completely reset. That's what happens to refugees. Whereas in the Banky world, what you do is you go into this new location, and let's take AB and Bev, for example. If a farmer for AB and Bev moves from Zambia to Uganda, they can go to a co-op station, give them their SMS phone number, and they'll be able to look up because that national ID, even though it was Zambia, it'll still be on the ledger. You never lose your history. Biggest problem we have with the migration crisis, people lose their history. Some of them also lose their identity. Exactly. And what is identity, right? I mean, it's a philosophical question, but for me, identity is not a piece of paper with your photo and a number on it. One of my co-founders is a refugee. Ask him. He was a refugee for three and a half years in the Dadaab refugee camp, and he was a number. He had identity, but completely useless because he couldn't prove anything. For us, identity is more, what have you done? What is your education? What is your history of agriculture? that then establishes your identity, which we call the economic identity or the economic passport. Because I've been in enough refugee camps, but people have five ID cards. And then they get moved to a different refugee camp. What happened to all the information? It's sitting in an Excel spreadsheet of an NGO. That's what I was asking about biometrics. It's all on your platform. No matter where they go, they can always access it. Yes. And to be honest, look, I mean, you know, I've, I've been in places where the people who are really skeptical about given just governments and dictatorships and everything. Nobody wants to give a thumb for nobody. But there are we, have, we work with where you can take it. We have the option. We just want to meet people where they are. How many companies are signing up or seeing the value of a transparent supply chain? Because if you think about how much chocolate, coffee, so on, that 
that's being purchased is really important where it's coming from. Well, it's an interesting question. So, again, this is all public. You can see it on our website. We work with major brands, AP and Bev, Resolving Development Bank and everything. The question is simple in the sense that do brands really want traceability, transparency, and equity in their supply chains, distribution or uh, resourcing, uh, sourcing or recycling? Uh, or they want to just talk about it. And, again, nothing against coffee or the cacao industry. You see now there are 2 million new children who have been forced into child labor mainly in mining and the cacao industry. I always get into this argument that a lot of companies do the greenwashing and they will talk about it. But if you cannot basically prove that you're reducing child labor or you cannot prove who your farmer is, then you're going to have the case, which is in front of the Supreme Court in December, where I think it was Nestle or Card, you'll have to look at the article. They said that, hey, we don't know if there are children being used because we don't know who the farmer is. But there's the other companies like ABN Bev who said, look, you know what? By 2025, every single one of our smallholder farmers will be skilled, connected, and financially empowered. And then they actually go do it with platforms like BenQ. Oh, so take Cobalt. I'm sorry to digress, but take Cobalt as a good example. Every smartphone has a lithium battery that comes from Cobalt. Largest resource of Cobalt mining is in the Congo. Every mining company has opened a school, yet child labor is rampant in the mining industry because there's greenwashing chatter and then actually doing it. No one really wants the children, though, then to be part of the blockchain technology. Yes, because of safety and privacy, right? But what we have done, and I can send you the case study that Stanford did on our work with child labor, what we did was with Japan Tobacco, we connected the school attendance system to blockchain. So the privacy stays intact, but instead of the teacher taking attendance on a piece of paper, which is super risky, and then filing it with the local authorities, now... As the children are coming into class under privacy guidelines, identity is secure, but now the farming family knows my child is in class. I'm a big believer that if you're really trying to reduce child labor in mining, you're really trying to reduce child labor in the cacao industry, then the cacao companies and the mining companies, don't use thank you, don't use blockchain. I don't care what you use, but at least do the right thing by ensure that you know where the children are. Because otherwise, you're going to do a report six months later that's going to say, oh, we opened a school. That's the old way. But no one's attending it. After COVID hit in March, two million new children got pushed into child labor. A hundred million new people went into extreme poverty, most of them women. It seems that it's mostly the female farmers and workers are mostly impacted. I mean, no, it's, it's men and women, right? I just have a passion uh, for, so you hear me, you know, if you look at all of Matilda, there's men and and women, I make it an issue just from a personal standpoint because of my roots in the sense that there's a massive gender inequality with smallholder farmers or waste pickers or garbage collectors. I can talk about we got an award, you know, in December, is we did a pilot rollout with AB and Bev to have a reduce or actually report on worker-related issues in terms of sexual harassment and things like that in the retail location in South Africa, right? And what I've found that gender inequality, extreme poverty, or any use cases around human rights violations happen typically at women's level. I'm not saying they don't happen at men's level, but women's level. And, and what we, I generally speak for the mama farm, I speak for the mama recycler, but we have, obviously, we work with men and women. I completely understand. You're saying that they're even more impacted than, let's say, men in poverty. In many ways, they can choose to be not paid or sexual harassment and so on. So that's why this technology platform can help them make sure they get paid and there's equity 
in their situation. It's also one more region, and this is proven, is responsibility with money. What we've seen, and this is even before Bank when I started warning Africa, women tend to be more responsible with money. And now in Bank we've seen that, you know, when you connect mobile money at the bank account, the women will turn, and I'll send you, this is public video, the first transaction I did almost three years ago, when the mama got the money on her SMS phone, so not a smartphone, and she had just been paid for a cassava, she starts laughing. And I thought she was laughing at me because, you know, I do stupid things all the time. She started laughing, and I asked her an interpreter what's going on. What she had done, she had so quickly realized the power of that phone, she paid her solar home system bill and her school fees. I have not met a man who's done that right away. I'm curious about what you think what's going on in the United States. I mean, there are a number of people who are not bankable here or in first world countries. What do you think is a challenge in a first world country like the United States then? And to be honest, I, you know, just my personal opinion is, is that I think it's a three-four challenge, right? One is that we have systems in place that actually prevent you from being bankable. I'll give you a good example, right? We did some testing and trials with the homeless population. And the homeless people loved the fact that all of their data was in one place. You know who didn't like it? Were all the bureaucracy agencies, all the NGOs, we each maintain a file on that same person, six agencies maintaining the file of the same person. That's a live example where if you're really trying to solve the homelessness problem, which is also tied to unbankability, why not have the homeless person own their economic passport? There's always 80-20, okay, 20%, whatever the number is. There's good human beings who are homeless, and all they're looking for is this economic uplifting to connect their job, connect their health care, connect their uh, assistance so that they can now start rebuilding. Perfect example. Another example is the, the incarcerated in the United States, right? When they get out, it is so hard to get back into the banking realm because nobody's going to trust your economic passport. And then you have the entire payday lending industry, the predatory lending industry, which gets away with a 270% interest. And I think that, in my humble opinion, unless and until we can actually say, I am willing to not help homeless people, that's the wrong word. If I'm actually willing to build an economic path that is tied to economic history, that's how you will end homelessness. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yes, well, there's still people who take their checks and they go to a convenience store and pay a 13% charge or 20% charge on that $100 or what they make is a huge percentage to get cash. I mean, it, to me, it's like it's like 2020. It's unbelievable that people can't go to the bank and cash their check. Oh, I'll give you another example. And I don't know if it happens in the U.S., but the, the average daily interest rate, right, in, in Africa and Latin America is 5 to 10% daily, okay? So think about that for a second. That's insane amount of daily interest that you're paying, and you'll never break the cycle of poverty. And I think it's the same thing in the U.S., is if you're never able to prove your supply chain information and that you're participating, even though you might be working in kind of an informal sector, you'll always be unbankable. Perhaps blockchain needs to be here too. Well, it is here, right? Except it's just more tied to products than it is to people's ability to bank. Where would you like to see the platform evolve over time? So my dream is very simple. Sounds crazy. My dream is to be $100 million software as a service profitable company and 100 million people uh, enabled out of extreme poverty. 
As of last year, we're at 3 million in revenues, the recurring revenues, and a million people. Our dream is to be at 10 and 10. And now I'll answer you the platform question because I to that. I'm a big believer that platforms like BenQ can be disruptors in a big way if the brands are willing to really want their supply chains to be traceable and transparent. Because for the long term, and this will answer your question, think about it, that if you are a coffee company that has been buying coffee in Congo and the farmer is not really getting paid, even though you're claiming fair trade, wouldn't you want the mother to get out of that poverty and somebody buy your coffee because she exists in your supply chain? So my, my dream and belief is that we are building an ecosystem that creates equity in a way that basically doesn't bring money to poor people to keep them poor, but levels the playing field. Because that mother now should be able to participate and say, hey, look, I grow coffee for the coffee company, but I grow peas and carrots in the off-season, and I'm paying for solar home systems. And at no given time should she care about BenQ or blockchain because her economic passport is hers. As people's awareness goes up, people are asking for products that have some kind of certification or that shows that it's fair trade or that it has a transparent supply chain. I think from that perspective, I think it's important that we raise that awareness. And I appreciate you sharing what BenQ is doing, that we all should be asking for a transparent supply chain from the products that we're using. And thank you for joining me on Spark today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a voice of the farmer, as I said, and I appreciate you giving them the voice.